You are listening to the Ethics for Medics podcast with Edju Dinucci and Christopher Bierhase. We can start now. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 2.4. I'm losing count already, but I believe <laughs> we are welcoming you back to episode 2.4 of the Ethics for Medics podcast. And just like we did last week, Christopher, we've yes. got a guest. Yes, we do. We have Jiong with us today. And Jiong is a, also a philosopher like myself, not a medic like Christopher. Um, and we invited Jiong along. She's an assistant professor at the Department of Public Health of the University of Copenhagen. So we work closely together and we invited her onto the show to talk about reproductive technologies. She's one of the kind of big experts on reproduction and reproductive technologies. And, uh, and I was especially fascinated. And that's, that's, that's what we're going to start from there, I think, because uh, it was a really nice. Uh, I was talking to Jiong last week um, and she told me that she started working recent, the last few uh, months on uh, uterus transplantation. And, and she told me this really interesting story about the way this new reproductive technology uh, has, has come about. And I think it's particularly relevant for our podcast where we interact between sort of the practice of, of medicine and the sort of theory of philosophy, because apparently the first medical doctor that did a uterus transplant got the idea from a patient. Basically, a patient gave them the idea of, uh, doing, um, uh, of transplanting her mother's womb. Um, but Jiong, I'm, I'm sure you can, you can tell that story uh, much better than I, than I can. And anyway, welcome onto the show. Thank you, Ezio and Christopher. Uh, very happy to be here discussing this with you. So maybe I should explain a little bit about um, what came out of this uh, story of the patient who actually was about to have a hysterectomy done and then um, gave the idea of, well, you should transplant the womb from my mother, I think the quote went. Um, and actually in 2014, um, a team of surgeons were able to successfully uh, carry out the world's first uterus um, transplantation, which led to um, the first uh, live birth from a uterus transplant. Um, and yeah, since then, it's been like uh, many other countries in the world have been approving their own trials for it. I think so far, there's been maybe up to like around 100 um procedures that have been done, uh, not necessarily all of them leading to a successful life birth, but like a successful transplantation of the uterus, let's say. Um, so it's definitely um, a surgery that's kind of like um, emerging. Um, and that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt so early on, but, but you're already making a really interesting distinction, I think, for, for the purposes of our podcast. So what is a successful transplant when it comes to the uterus, I guess there are two ways of evaluating it. Normally, when we think about transplanting organs, success, like recently, again, there was a, wasn't there a, a pig heart transplanted into a man uh, the other week? And uh, I guess normally we think in terms of survival rates, right? So whether the new organ gets accepted by the organism, the medic here should correct me. Um, but in this case, I guess there is another sort of measure of success, which is not just whether the organ is accepted, integrated by the new organism, but whether it leads to an actual life birth. And you're saying that, you know, some of them have been unsuccessful as in the organ has been rejected or, you know, has not led to, you know, kind of functioning and others have been successful, but have not resulted 
in a in a live birth. Um, I think that's 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 a really interesting distinction. Did I get the the medical side right, Christopher? Yeah, I think so. Although this is partly out of the the GP setting, so I'm also not in my. But if I can say, just yeah, yeah. yeah add to that, it's your, you are precisely right with that. Um, because one thing I should mention is that the reason this uh, uterus transplantation is being, um, you know, is going through these uh, clinical trials, um, and the reason why it's becoming this kind of emerging uh, assisted reproductive technology is precisely to help um, patients with uh, absolute uterine factor infertility to establish a successful pregnancy. So the goal is to kind of have that experience of being able to like gestate your own uh, child, you know, be able to know what a pregnancy feels like, and then hopefully have a healthy life birth um, from that. So currently it's um, being offered to women uh, with uh, absolute uterine factor infertility. And of course, there's been talks as well as to whether this um, surgery should be extended to, let's say, transgender people or other people who might want to have that same experience of yeah. a pregnancy but are not able to because of physiological reasons. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And again, I think you're implicitly drawing a really interesting distinction. And, and, and I mean, it's only the second time we've got a guest on our show, but it is the first time that we've got a guest working on things that, for example, I've also worked on. So I guess I have to hmm. find my own way of now relating to this because I have, you know, my own opinions and, and I've, I've written on this topic. But I guess one interesting point that you just made, Jiang, is that this is not just about becoming parents. There are other ways of becoming parents. It's a certain way of experiencing parenthood. And, uh, and I guess, I mean, you can be probably much more uh, precise than me on this, but I guess you, we can call it genetic parenthood, biological parenthood, gestational parenthood. But, it, but as you were saying, I guess we're not just talking about parenthood. We're talking about a specific experience, like an embodied experience of parenthood. Why is that important to people? Precisely. Um, yeah, that's a question I, I grapple with um, myself, but I, I think what's so interesting about looking into this uterus transplant is actually that um, it's not simply a transplant where you receive the uterus and then if it's, you know, the graft was successful, um, it's not like you can even have uh, a child through natural intercourse after the fact. You actually need to go through um, in vitro fertilization in order to then conceive with a transplanted uterus. So there's actually many steps to this procedure that really attests to, I guess, the, the fact that the recipients pursuing this process genuinely really want either um, to achieve genetic parenthood on top of, I guess, the gestational parenthood, which you talked about as being this embodied um, experience. But it's been interesting to me because it has these so many steps, um, you know. This is really interesting. And I, you know, I was just saying that I know stuff about this, but this I didn't know, right? So I'm also out of my depth here. So, so did you just say, Jiang, that basically even a successful uterus transplant will not result in the kind of traditional or what people might call the normal experience because they cannot uh, become pregnant. Those women or those, those persons cannot become pregnant through intercourse. They still need something like IVF or something like that. Can you explain why they cannot become exactly. pregnant or is that? Um, so, so I so think that, there yeah. are like, I guess, medical reasons for that. Um, because another thing I should mention is that um, you cannot also give like a, 
natural delivery when it comes to the birth, um, it requires a C-section as well if you have a uterus transplant. So all of those steps that we sort of take for granted that you can have you know, sexual intercourse and then achieve conception and then gestate and then have a kind of delivery, vaginal delivery of the child, let's say, um, all of those things are kind of like, um, yeah, uh, challenged um, in this process because it, it requires multiple, I guess, um, surgeries or kind of artificial techniques um, in order to achieve all so of that. So the thing that these women or pregnant persons having common with, you know, the privileged majority, let's call it that way, is the gestation. So the beginning of the process and the end of the process is still going to be different, even though there are a lot of people that do C-sections, right? And there are also a lot of people that do IVF and, 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 and this kind of stuff. Precisely. But, but the, the, the middle nine months, they're normal. Is that, is that even a, you know, is that, does that question make sense? Or are they different as well? given that one has been transplanted a, a kind of yes, uh, foreign um, uterus. Yeah, so actually the uterus transplant is um, considered, I think, the first um, temporary transplant in the world. And that is because in order to keep this uterus um, in your body and for it to, you know, for you to use it to do this gestation, um, you have to take immunosuppressive drugs throughout the whole process. So it, it is a risky pregnancy all all throughout um okay. but it is at least possible for you to have the experience of a pregnancy given that you kind of accept these multiple risks so of like you know the process involved with um ivf where you might need to yeah um retrieve somebody's eggs uh for instance for you to be um under an immunosuppressive burden during the pregnancy itself and then, of course, the fact that you need to accept a C-section delivery of the child. Um, yeah. And how has the reactions been so far regarding the whole your procedure? I mean, I, I'm sure we can discuss afterwards all the ethical potential dilemmas and so on. But uh, so far, what are, do you know the reactions? Can I say this is classic in our podcast that the medic asks the philosophical <laughs> question and the philosopher asks actually the medical question. Can can I ask one small sure. question before we discuss that? Just a curiosity, because you said the thing about the transplant being the first temporary transplant. Do they take it out again afterwards? Yes, they do. After one pregnancy? Yes. So actually after... Um, I think it may be possible for you to keep it up to two pregnancies, but as I mentioned, because of the immunosuppressive burden, it's just not... Um, feasible to keep it in permanently and that's why after you have the c-section delivery of your child which is hopefully what this whole process leads to you then need to get a um an explant yeah that's really interesting thanks for explaining that um yeah so i guess then we can move on to the you know to the big kind of social ethical and political questions that christopher was pointing to so what do people make of it basically I think in like the context of like fertility and fertility treatment and in reproductive medicine, I, I feel like it's been, you know, taken as a very kind of like innovative uh, procedure that will basically help uh, women with a certain type of infertility, which is the absolute uterine factor infertility that I talked about. So I think in that sense, it's seen as like, wow, this is a development that's going to be able to medically um help people a lot um and when i've uh, spoken to um yeah colleagues who've done research um on um people seeking uterus uh, transplants 
Um, I was also told that, uh, you know, when when this news came out, basically, or when there's like uh, clinical uh, trials taking place in certain countries, like people actually write into them because they want to like, you know, help out or volunteer their uterus um, as well uh, often. So I think in the U.S., um, they, there is one program that maybe allows um, like altruistic, let's say, uh, quote unquote, um, donors to like give up their uterus to someone who might want to go through with the uterus transplantation. Um, and there's like been very like positively framed stories that have come out of this of like, you know, I've had um, children and then uh, I wanted to give my uh, uterus uh, to somebody who might want that same experience as me. And that's what motivated them to participate in this, you know, as we've already mentioned, quite like a medically burdensome process. Um, so I feel like it, in that sense, there's been quite positive reactions. And this to is it. interesting, this point about, because we started from that story where I guess there was a genetic relation between the donor and the recipient, namely mother and daughter. And I guess that's a classic case. But now you're saying, Jiang, that basically now it has developed to uh, the sort of donor-recipient relation does not need any genetic commonality. Is, is that correct? Uh, not necessarily, yeah. So I think it's more about establishing, I guess, the compatibility of the donor, but that's not based on genetic, right? Even though it might help because of, I don't know... Um, like the blood type compatibility or, right. or, yeah, some, that makes or sense, something obviously. like this. But I should mention, um, and this is also an ethical issue, I would say, that I find interesting, is that even though there is this program in the US that kind of allows, I guess, uterus donors to kind of come forward who are strangers to the uh, proposed recipient, most of the uterus transplants that have been done have been through clinical trials where this open recruitment is not happening in this way where like strangers who are, have these altruistic motivations come forward. So I should say that in practice, most of the donors are indeed related to the people receiving uterus transplants. For example, it could be their own mother, uh, aunt, sister, somebody like that. There are so many interesting issues. I think we definitely need to, I mean, as, as Christopher was pointing to, we definitely need to talk about, you know, what kind of ethical, social and political issues are connected to this relationship mother-daughter, mm -hmm. for example. But but I also, and I know that, Jiang, you've written on this. I'm also a little bit suspicious of this altruistic motivation thing. I read, I, and I can recommend that to our listeners, one of the best books I read this summer is this Japanese novel called Breast and Eggs, that has been talked about the last few years quite a lot, but I hadn't read it yet. And, uh, and it, it's a very good takedown of someone that wants to donate. But obviously mm. that has got masculinity involved because of someone that wants to donate their their sperm and of this man that is doing it for altruistic reasons and is mm. very visible online donating um, his sperm. And, and, and you just reminded me of that. I think that obviously altruistic is a loaded term and I think that's why it's worth kind of thinking about it. But maybe we should start from the mother-daughter relation because I guess, I mean, all of us being, you know, parents, children, uh, I mean, that's such a that's such a difficult relationship to begin with. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you put a kind of organ transplant on top yes. of such a kind of intense but also often difficult relationship. And hopefully my mother is not listening <laughs> to the podcast. Yes, and I totally agree with you, Etio, which is why I, I am interested in this um, topic in general. And I think there's like many layers to it. So 
Uh, one aspect is, of course, the way that I guess these um, surgeries kind of play on the relational aspects of like who the recipient might go and ask for the uterus. And of course, family members sort of being posed as like the natural candidate for that. But on top of that, um, I think it's, yeah, there's like a gendered aspect to it as well, um, which is that a if you ask your own mother, presumably your mother is done with her own childbearing uh, by the stage that you're ready to gestate. Um, so there's something there also about like the fact that if you are, um, you know, uh, postmenopausal or you know just under premenopausal or something like that you don't really have like you know you're in a position to give away your uterus because you've used it to bear your own children and there's no yeah so I think that's also an interesting um aspect to it because what I've noticed is that um when I looked into some of the recruitment criteria for donors in many of these trials, a requirement for a donor coming forward would be that they need to have completed childbearing. So they need to be uh, multi-parous, as in they need to have at least given birth to one child already before they can kind of like consent or sign up to be a uterus donor. So I think the mother-daughter relationship plays both on the kind of familial or the kind of emotional uh, dynamic that exists between the um, the recipient donor pair and also this gendered aspect of like you can only give your uterus up to somebody else if you've used it yourself to have your own children. Which reinforces I guess expectation on women about normative motherhood and about sort of the role of women in society and things like that. Absolutely I, I can completely uh, see that I, but but I wanted to point to uh, or maybe ask both of you actually about another aspect of this which is you know we talk on this podcast a lot about consent within healthcare right and I guess a crucial condition for informed consent and that's how we teach it as well at the medical school is that it has to be uh, not just uh, meet the, the epistemic uh, threshold uh, so be informed but also that it has to be voluntary and I think in this particular case, because of the special relationship between parents and children, and maybe even more mothers and daughters, I would almost want to question whether there can be any legitimate consent. How can a mother say no in our society mm -hmm. to her own daughter's wish to become herself a mother? And uh, I, I wonder whether, again, and I, I know a little bit of the literature about reproductive technologies, and I know we've been to some of these conferences together so I've heard people speak about it but I I don't know I haven't come across someone sort of basically making an argument that the problematic thing here mm -hmm. is that there cannot be consent in the way we normally expect it in healthcare because it's just so difficult yes. to say no the pressure is too big basically does anybody think that yeah um well i think you're definitely onto something there because i feel like the the norm is indeed also when we have this problematic distinctions about you know uh, altruistic motivations versus what financial or whatever else it may be um i think the altruistic term in itself kind of also plays on this uh, aspect right of like yeah if you're a family member and you're trying to like help out another family member, especially if you're a mother to a, a daughter who's having a hard time uh, struggling with infertility, then of course the nice thing for you to do or like would be this. And I think that is what precisely creates an ethical tension of like, 
well, can you really opt out of that situation? Maybe it's not uh, so much that you were forced to do it, but it's kind of like the uh, the relational or the emotional uh, dynamics that you maybe wouldn't want to disrupt by saying no would be what creates this tension of like whether you can, I guess, give voluntary consent or however you want to And then what it. would be potentially inconsistent with kind of traditional consent guidelines within healthcare. What does the GP think of that? Is there such a thing as, you know, if you cannot truly say no because the pressure is on, then it cannot be consent? Because I guess from a philosophical point of view, the worry would be, well, we cannot overdo this objection because, you know, if you need life-saving treatment, that's also the pressure is on, right? So yes, you can say no, but obviously because you're going to die, then, you know, it's not a kind of free sort of uh, choice either. So, so, I mean, can we compare that to that kind of pressure, the kind of medical pressure for life-saving treatment? Or can you see that there might be an issue here? I can imagine that a way to approach it would be to compare it with the organ donation of other organs, right? Mm -hmm. To what extent is this different from other organs? And I would, my intuitive thought would be that this would be easier for a mother or a, a, a family member to to decline because it's not life-threatening, right? I mean, I understand the, the points you're making, but it must be much more difficult if you're talking about mm. donating a kidney or a liver or a, or something like that where the, the patient actually highly likely will die if they, if they don't get the organ, right? Yes, yeah, I totally agree. And I think this comes back to your point, Etsy, of like, why is this a thing in the first place? Like, or I guess, what is the kind of medical value that is being attached to gestation such that having these transplants, you know, are justified um, in the first place? So I think you're definitely right about that. And that, you know, currently there is some debate about this because I guess, you know, it's not uh, comparable to other kind of vital living organ donations, right? This is just to um, hopefully give um, somebody the experience of a pregnancy and of course, like struggles with infertility that is to be taken seriously. But I guess, you know, when you kind of like zoom out and consider, I guess, where the resources are going and what types of organ transplants should be justified, I think a lot of people would sympathize with your point that well, not only that it would, might be easier for a donor to say no because it's not a, like a life-saving procedure, but also that justification for doing the surgery itself is maybe should be lowered on a list of priority because it doesn't have like um, the same life-saving potential. It maybe at best has like a life-enhancing potential. But again, you can kind of come back and say, well, it's that life-enhancing potential is extremely important to a lot because of people. Because people care right? so much about reproduction. Yeah, I completely understand that. But I guess the same kind of critical approach that Christopher was suggesting in the comparison with or, uh, an organ transplant of other organs, I mean, can, can we not also discuss the value of reproduction as such? If, you know, if we're talking about something expensive, invasive, risky, temporary, so there are a lot of caveats to this, right? And I guess it's... So maybe actually, maybe that's why... Uh, you think it's so interesting because you know given all these complexities maybe it gives us an opportunity to just reflect critically on reproduction and i guess i'll just mention two considerations that are you know, difficult ones because reproduction is almost like a kind of holy grail but obviously if we think in terms of the climate 
but also if we think in terms of gender inequality. I mean, it seems to me the reproduction is incompatible or anyway in tension with both taking the climate crisis seriously, mm. but also with taking uh, gender inequality seriously. I mean, basically my point being a very simple one about the demographics, um, uh, but also about the fact that women continue to carry the biggest share of the reproductive and childbearing burden. Yes. And, uh, and But I understand that it's really difficult to, and I want to hear what you guys think about this, because I understand it's really difficult because those are women themselves asking for right. this procedure. So it's quite difficult to, as a man, to come back and say, oh, look, you know, but what about, you know, reproduction being oppressive or what about gender inequality or what about, you know, carrying the burden of childbearing and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in a liberal society, if they're asking for it and if it's medically legitimate, and then there is the question of need and resources, but they can go to the private sector, I guess. I mean, we've had this, this conversation yeah. many times on this podcast. Can, can you see any scope for thinking critically about reproduction coming from the debate on neutron transplants? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, I do sympathize with your points personally, but even if I was to say, okay, well, this kind of thing should be supported because indeed it allows, um, you know, it ena enables the alleviation of suffering that might be caused by infertility struggles or something like that. I do think there is a kind of like, hmm, maybe issues that are not addressed as openly about some of these um, assisted reproductive technologies and g going for these interventions in general, which is that even something like in vitro fertilization has, does not have like, uh, does not guarantee you the successful life birth of a child. It's actually more likely that the IVF will fail um, to help someone conceive um, because the success rate is just not that great. So it's also like, I think there are, medical uh, reasons to be a little bit skeptical um, about how these uh, interventions or technologies are being kind of presented or offered in the first place as an opportunity for the alleviation of, um, yeah, I guess, suffering related to um, wanting to reproduce or something like that, because it might not even alleviate that, even if it's a valid I guess concern. there's something interesting that I don't know. Christopher, if you can see the same link that I see with what we did in the last episode. In the last episode, we were talking about something completely different, uh, namely uh, postpartum depression pill that has been recently introduced to, uh, to treat depression for women that have just given birth. So not completely different because it's also about reproduction and maybe also about the oppressive character of reproduction. And maybe that's why. Uh, that's what causes postpartum depression. But, but, but the link actually isn't reproduction here. The link that I was seeing was this idea that normally technologies, whether it's meds or whether it's, you know, other kinds of technologies like reproductive technologies, we think of them as having disruptive potential. Mm. And, and, and disruptive, I guess, means, you know, sort of enabling or promoting change uh, in a potentially uh, complex but also uh, positive way. And, and, but I'm not seeing the disruptive potential of reproductive technologies if I, if I have to be honest, like I yeah. can see that this has to be taken very seriously, infertility as, a, as, 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 as causing suffering, I can see that, but still that, that's just alleviating suffering in the normal way that medicine does. I don't see any disruption there. Mm. Uh, where I see a little bit more potential for disruption is this idea that obviously um, LGBTQ uh, groups might gain access to certain kinds of parenthood through reproductive technologies, 
again, those are some of the most discriminated against groups in our society, so we should take that very seriously. But as we said at the beginning, it's not as if reproductive technologies were the only way of accessing parenthood. One can become a parent also without reproductive technology. So it is, again, not about parenthood, but it is about the experience of pregnancy or biological parenthood and this kind of things. Um, so, yeah, so I, I was just curious to hear from both of you, I mean, especially, obviously, from our uh, expert guest, what is the disruptive potential of reproductive technologies? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess to your point about, you know, if it could be offered to uh, other groups like LGBT, Q or queer communities, um, uh, whoever might be interested in the experience of gestation. Um, and I guess you might think there that, um, you know, the more people being able to access an experience that has traditionally been thought of as being kind of unique to like a, I don't know, a biologically female bodies or, or something like that, you might think that's could be interesting, not not as it stands currently, because as I've mentioned, this uterus transplants are only offered to women with absolute uterine factor infertility. But if in the future it could be opened up to sort of um, give the experience of gestation to uh, different groups of people, you might think maybe, maybe, maybe that could disrupt. Men yeah, could, exactly. Uh, want the experience of gestation, and maybe that will disrupt something about who is expected to gestate or take that gestational burden and you might think that has some potential to be um, used to reopen discussions about gendered parenthood or um, actually who gets to have gestational parenthood even and so maybe Absolutely. that's no, something I can definitely see that point I mean that's actually a very powerful point thanks for for making it basically that there is potential for sort of equalizing and equalizing is definitely a disruptive force right by offering the gestational experience to groups that have traditionally not accessed it, including uh, heterosexual men. And I also think, um, yeah, when it comes to disruptive consequences, right, I think it's also valuable to consider it more broader than just the direct disruptive potential, right? Because then I agree to you, Etcho, that it might not be that disruptive in itself, but as you just say, Jiang, it can be disruptive on so many other secondary steps on the way. Just like, I mean, you can imagine the, the mobile phone, the cell phone, right? In itself, it might not have been that disruptive, but all the secondary consequences that follows with social media, cameras everywhere, always being in touch and so on, that provides some uh, disruptive effects that were not seen in the, from the beginning, from the actual product right that's such a powerful analogy right because i guess that's right that when we think in terms of mobile phones or cell phones we automatically think in terms of when phones sort of moved out of the house but actually today probably the biggest consequences have to do with the internet and social media and those kind of things and not the actual sort of mobile character of the telephone and that the disruption comes in a slower pace than expected right it wasn't that when the first cell phone came out that suddenly everybody was screaming disruption right but it has just slowly gone into every part of society and all the detail from everything from the net bank to how to communicate with the social security and so on mm -hmm. is going through this new technology so that's why what young say it's not that this new technology when it's finally is capable of being 
how to say not mass produced but you know being used in in common clinic work, clinical work right but then but it will be afterward it will be all the whole way in which how we consider gender what kind of rights how are you obliged to give birth uh, birth and so on can you ask or pay someone else to to do it for you and so on that all these secondary things will come I think it will be interesting if like, um, so I, I should clarify that this is definitely not a routine uh, or easy surgery to do by any means, but I think just as a thought experiment. Yeah, I imagine if, a, I don't know, a heterosexual couple is discussing like having children and the heterosexual man in the couple says like, yeah, I would like, like three children. And the woman is like, well, I'll do it if you're the one that gestates all of them. What would he say in that situation yeah, if it was possible? It's your, you can have an uterus <laughs> afterwards. Would that work? Yes, right? Yeah, that, that is physiologically... Okay, so this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. Uh, is someone wanting to know whether I got my vasectomy yet? Um, no, but I wanted to push back a little bit. So first of all, I want to point out that, as always on this podcast, is the medic that makes the important philosophical distinctions because I think the distinction between primary and secondary consequences is very important, you know, when we do uh, when we do analysis uh, of cases as well, absolutely. So I think the listeners and especially the medical students should keep that distinction that Christopher just made in mind. But I wanted to push back on, I mean, if we were really interested in disruption, in technologies around our reproductive practices, disrupting sort of, oppressive practices in, in our society. And I think we've used that word on this podcast, the Barbie word. I don't know if people have watched Barbie, but I've I've gone twice and I love it because no other film has ever said the word patriarchy as often <laughs> as the Barbie movie. So I'm a big fan of the Barbie movie. But uh, so if you, if you were really interested in disrupting the patriarchy, then I guess I wouldn't choose uterus transplantation. Maybe I would think more in terms of, you know, ectogestation or things that, would actually allow equalizing on the basis of not gestating. But I guess that is on the assumption mm -hmm. that there is oppressive potential in gestating itself. And I understand yes. that, you know, I'm not providing an argument for that. And um, I guess it depends on if you see like um, equalization of gestational labor as being achieved by giving men the ability to gestate. Is that leveling up or leveling down, right? And that's also the same question that comes up for um, ectogestation or the development of artificial placentas it's like do you consider the disembodiment of a pregnancy again I should say it's all very hypothetical because we're not at that stage yet where it's possible but if it were would that be considered like leveling up from okay let's play with that because you know <laughs> I have to think about that I mean and you, you listeners can tell why we've invited Jiang because you know sort of she's got a huge brain and, and now we, I have to think so 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 wait so you're saying that basically one could consider leveling up allowing men to gestate and leveling down not allowing anybody to gestate but one could also well, flip it and yeah. say well actually the leveling up is abolishing gestation if gestation is what's oppressive but am I being too political is it maybe time to stop well but I'm not taking like a position on what would count as leveling but up I or down am. but i'm saying so it, it would depend on what you see as that and i i mean i have the sense that uh uterus transplantation because of like it kind of i guess reproduces gestational labor in more bodies than uh, is currently possible i would think that's a form of leveling down that's my personal intuition um but of course people might 
disagree with that. And I mean, that's something we have to play with. And on with. that note, maybe we thank Jiang and we conclude. And can I say that I'd love to do an episode on ectogestation because it sort of popped up at the very end. So if anybody out there wants to come onto the show to talk about ectogestation, <laughs> this call is for you. Thanks for listening. Ciao. Thank you. Yes, thank Ciao. you. Ciao.